0: Welcome back to Recovering Faith. This is the 59th episode, if you can believe that. Uh, I mentioned last week that um, I've been really busy because I'm buying a house and everything. Well, uh, I made sure to make time to properly prepare for this episode, but I'm still really busy in addition to doing the podcast and buying a house and and everything that goes along with it um I also volunteered to teach a vacation Bible school at my church this summer or this uh, early spring and so uh, somebody asked me today if I actually had time to teach vacation Bible school and I said well there's always time to do the right thing so um hope that that all works out and I pray that I am the uh, I'm what the kids needs and that I will be able to relate to them and help them to have a relationship with Christ. So, anyhow, this episode, I'm calling this episode, Well, That Escalated Quickly. And the reason I call it that is because, have you ever participated in something that started out innocent enough but eventually you knew it had crossed the line but you weren't aware of Exactly when you crossed the line, just that you'd crossed it several counties back? Because you progressed so slowly at first, you didn't notice when you crossed the line, and you had difficulty pinpointing exactly at what point you crossed the line. But there's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that you crossed it. I would say that most of the time we cross the line when we want to do something. We know is not right or don't feel quite right about it and have to seek to justify our actions. That is at, what, at the point we cross the line, but we don't really pay attention. I think it all happens, it happens to all of us at some point in our lives that we realize we've crossed the line and gotten too far and couldn't quite remember exactly at what point we crossed it. And the reason that happens is because we make small concessions here and there. And over enough time, we find ourselves far and away from where we wanted to be and have done things that we never thought we would do. When we seek to justify small things, we blur the line between right and wrong and not only make it difficult to determine when we initially cross the line, but it also opens the door for much greater sins. I've never actually boiled a frog, but... It's fairly common knowledge that, a frog's, that frogs are often boiled alive and they're never put into hot water as they would immediately jump out. But when you put them into cold water that is gradually brought to a boil, they will stay in the pot and boil to death. Sin works that way as well. And when the average person is confronted by a huge sin, they would balk. But if gradually built up to it by small sins, that increase gradually in severity, they will eventually commit the atrocious, uh, the atrocious sin that they were initially repulsed by. Concessions can start extremely small and be almost innocent, such as when the cashier accidentally gives you too much change and you decide to keep it because it is, after all, only 30 cents. But if we keep 30 cents that is not ours today, we may choose not to notice tomorrow when the cashier forgets to ring up the milk, and so forth and so on. When I was a child, my mother took me and my sisters to the store to buy candy. And when we were back in the car and down the road, my mother heard me tell one of my sisters that I was given too much change. So my mother immediately took us back to the store and made me give the extra money back. I tried to convince my mother to allow me to keep it because it was such a small amount and it wasn't like I stole it, uh, because it was a store's mistake after all. But my mother made me tell the cashier that I was given too much change and she made me give it back. It took a while, but my mother got me to realize that I had an absolute moral obligation to give the money back, even if no one would ever notice that I had been given too much change. My mother did her best to make sure that my sisters and I grew up to be moral people. Sin starts small like a seed, and while it may not be easy to get rid of it when it's small, if we allow it to grow, it can become extremely difficult to remove. And the longer it is allowed to grow, the stronger it gets and the more difficult it will be to remove. I firmly believe that no one ever wakes up in the morning and says to themselves out of the blue, you know what? I think I'm going to have an affair today. Usually affairs start off with things that may seem innocent, like a little quote unquote innocent flirting with that person at work. And so you, since you didn't feel bad about uh, flirting with them, you've that it would be no big deal for just the two of you to have lunch, which leads to confiding in each other and becoming emotionally vulnerable. Over the course of time, what started off as mostly innocent through small concessions leads to shifting the goalposts farther and farther away. You say that the two of you are just friends and there's nothing going on, but neither of you feel comfortable telling your spouses about it. And neither. Of, and since you two are just friends, you say there is no harm in having dinner together when your wife or husband is out of town, but of course you don't tell them because they wouldn't understand. Eventually, by degrees, you're having an affair, and like the idiot you are, you don't know how you got there. I know someone who had an affair, and despite the fact that I and other friends told them that they were crossing the line long before there was any physical infidelity, they chose to believe that they were doing nothing wrong up to the point that they actually crossed the biggest and final line When they engaged in sexual relations with someone other than their spouse, I think, and I am not alone in thinking this, that you have cheated on your wife or husband as soon as you allow yourself to become emotionally vulnerable with another person. Emotionally cheating is cheating, and without it, there would be no physical cheating. Sin always starts small, but it never wants to stay that way. Even though it lies to you and says it is okay, that this will be as far as it'll ever go and one more time won't hurt. This is just slightly more than the last time so in the grand scheme of things it really doesn't matter. Sin tells us what we want to hear because it knows what it needs to grow. Not only does sin want to grow, it wants to remain secret because sand has an extremely time growing an extremely difficult time growing when it's out in the open where it'll be challenged but in the dark where it's allowed to grow slowly it grows from small things to a monster that will ultimately destroy you one of my favorite movies is the Ridley Scott movie Alien And if you haven't seen the movie, the plot is that a ship is flying through space with cargo on its way back to Earth, when the ship's artificial intelligence uh, system finds a distress beacon and reroutes to investigate. When some of the crew go to investigate, they find a derelict alien vessel that appears to have crashed, and inside they find the crew of the ship dead with their rib cages pushed out from the inside, as if something exploded from inside them. As if that were enough of a, not enough of a red flag, the crew continues to with their exploration, and one of them finds a room full of large, leathery-looking eggs. And when he foolishly reaches out and touches one, it opens, and a creature jumps out and attaches itself to his face. The company protocol is clear that if anyone is infected, they have to be quarantined but the android who is serving as the science officer breaks protocol and opens the door and allows the crew to board the ship without quarantine including the unconscious crew member with a strange creature attached to his face in a few hours the creature dies and falls off the crew member's face and everyone assumes that he's fine without doing any medical tests whatsoever a short time later while everyone's sitting around the table the man who had the close encounter of the strange kind starts coughing, and someone makes a joke about the food not being that bad. And then it quickly becomes apparent that he's in real trouble. No sooner than they had the man laying on his back on the table, than a creature, much scarier than the one that had been attached to his face, bursts out of the man's chest, spraying blood on the rest of the crew. Even at this point, the crew could have prevented tragedy by containing the alien in the room. But the door was left open and it escaped to the dark recesses of the ship where it could grow larger and much more dangerous. In a later attempt to find and kill the creature, all but one crew member died, and the one who survived only did so by the most narrow of margins. Ripley, the one crew member who survived... She only survived because she blew up the ship and escaped in a landing craft. But once she escaped the ship, she quickly learned that the alien had hitched a ride with her. Ripley slowly strapped herself into the chair and opened the airlock, which sucked the alien out into space. After Ripley was finally safe, she put, uh, she programmed the ship to return to Earth and put herself into a hypersleep. But something went wrong, and she was found 50 years later, drifting through space. And at that point, everyone she knew was dead. All of this because of what was considered by some to be a small concession at the time, which was to break protocol. As we read in the Bible, Samson was a Nazarite, and as such, he wasn't allowed to cut his hair, he wasn't allowed to touch anything that had died, and he wasn't allowed to drink alcohol. But time and time again, throughout Samson's life, he flirted with sin and he claimed as close as possible to breaking his vow without actually breaking it. If you try to stay as close to the line as possible without crossing it, you will eventually cross it, even if only by accident. During the life of Samson, the Philistines were an enemy to the Israelites, yet Every relationship we read about Samson having was with Philistine women, and two of the three were prostitutes. So, Samson not only tried to come as close to breaking his vow as he could without actually breaking it, he also had an issue with sexual immorality. The first woman we read about Samson having a romantic interest in was a Philistine woman Samson had seen and fallen in love with near the vineyard of Timna. And remember, A vineyard is a place where Samson shouldn't have been in the first place. Despite his parents urging him to get married to one of his own people, Samson was set on marrying the Philistine woman, and while en route to Timnah with his parents, a lion came and attacked him, and he tore it to pieces with his bare hands, as if it were a young goat, the Bible tells us. I have so many questions. I mean, who tears apart a young goat with their bare hands in the first place? And even though a young goat wouldn't fight like a lion, I can't imagine it would be easy to tear one apart with your bare hands. But anyhow, that's di- that's diverging from the actual point here. The Bible doesn't tell us why, but Samson chose not to tell his parents about the incident with a lion. I would assume that Samson didn't tell his parents because he was compromising his standards and his vows, because if he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, at some point he would have been tearing the carcass after it died, and perhaps he was afraid his parents would scald him for it. Granted, I'm not sure Samson broke his vow to not touch the carcass of anything dead that that had died in this situation, but he was certainly skirting it at best. Later on, on the way home, Samson comes across the carcass of the lion and sees that the bees have made a nest in it, and he scoops out honey with his bare hands and eat it, eats it, and he gives some of it to his parents. But again, he keeps a secret, and he doesn't tell his parents where the honey came from. The thing about sin is it has a difficult time growing in the open, and it wants to remain a secret where it can safely grow without challenge. And I would wager that if we are compelled to keep something we did secret, that on some level we know or at least think that it was wrong. Samson also had an unhealthy obsession with riddles, which eventually led to the death of his wife. Samson made a wager with the Philistines that they couldn't get the answer to one of his riddles, but they threatened his wife and said that unless she got him the answer, they would kill her family. So she pressured Samson for days, and finally he gave in, and he told his wife the answer to the riddle. And in order to save her family, she went and immediately told the Philistine men. Well, Samson was angry, but he honored his agreement, and while he was out gathering the 30 garments that he'd promised to give if he lost the wager, his wife was given to the best man, And when he returned home, he was told that he couldn't be with his wife because she'd been given to another. In a fit of rage, Samson burned down the fields of the people responsible for the wedding debacle. Which, uh, if you haven't read this in the Book of Kings, how he does so is he captures 300 foxes. And he ties their tails together in pairs, and then he ties a lit torch to their tails, and then he sets them free in the fields, and they're running through the fields with a lit torch, and it catches the field on fire. So, I would say that Samson was pretty set on uh, causing some Mayhem there. But anyhow, uh, because Samson burned down the fields, they retaliated against him by killing his wife and his wife's family. After Samson became a widower, he decided to spend time with a Philistine prostitute. And while he was there, the Philistines plotted to kill him. But Samson escaped. I think it's important to note that while sexual immorality was not specifically forbidden to Samson as a Nazarite, it was forbidden by the law of God that pertained to not only to Samson, but to all God's people. Even if Samson was following the rules that specifically applied to him, which a case could be argued that he was not doing a very good job at it. He was most certainly not keeping all of the laws of God. Later, when Samson got involved with Delilah, another Philistine prostitute, it became his downfall. Samson hadn't been with Delilah long before she started asking him how he could be defeated. So there should have been, and I dare say... Could have been, no doubt in Samson's mind, that Delilah had it in her heart to have him put to death by the Philistines. And yet, he stayed because his lust for her, and because he was so overconfident in his own strength. Samson was flirting with disaster in order to be indulged by sin. If Samson had any doubt before that Delilah's loyalties were to the man who wanted him dead, and not to him, though only an idiot could have. He knew for certain that she wanted to betray him once she tied him up and turned him and uh, called the Philistine men into the room. And yet, he stayed. Samson was letting the wrong part of his anatomy decide his actions and his future. Eventually, Samson's sin destroyed him. And make no mistake, it was Samson's sin that was his downfall and not the loss of his hair. Had Simpson not been willingly participating in a sinful activity, he would not have been in the position where he lost his hair in the first place. But sin is like a drug, and one fix is never enough, and the more you have, the more you want until it destroys you. Out of fear that he may not be able to continue his sinful and shameful activities with Delilah, Simpson eventually gave in and told Delilah how he could be defeated and as soon as he did, she wasted no time in betraying him to his ultimate death. While Samson slept with the head on Delilah's lap, she cut his hair and bound him. When the men were called in to take Samson, he was surprised that he couldn't defeat them as he had previously done. But even though he was not consciously aware that he was doing it, He willingly gave up the strength that God gave him in exchange for sinful and fleeting pleasure. Samson was initially attracted to Delilah because she was so beautiful to look at. And the very first thing the men did to him when they captured him was to put his eyes out. At the end, Samson destroyed a multitude of the Philistines when he humbled himself before God and had his strength restored so he could bring the building down. But it also ended his own life as well. Simpson's life could have gone so differently had he listened to the counsel of the Almighty God and not allowed the enticements of sin to rule his destiny. Sin is a good liar and tells us what we want to hear and tells us that it wants to remain what it is, but sin never wants to remain small. The famous evangelist Ravi Zacharias said, Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. A lot of people try to portray pornography as normal and healthy, but in actuality it is not only a sin in and of itself, but puts those who perform in it in dangerous situations, sometimes against their will. But it is also the doorway to more vile acts of depravity. In an interview shortly before his death, the infamous serial killer, Ted Bundy, admitted he got his start watching pornography, as had many other men who committed atrocities. And Now, I'm not saying that everybody who watches porn will be a serial killer. Far from it. But what I am saying is that it can lead to far greater sins. The following is from the article, Is There a Connection Between Serial Killers, Rapists, and Pornography? And it says... When asked about his past experience with pornography, he stated, meaning Ted Bundy, I was essentially a normal person. I had good friends. I led a normal life except for this one small but very potent, very destructive segment of it that I kept very secret and very close to myself, and I didn't let anybody know about it. Then, perhaps in one of the most powerful personal accounts that has ever been given about the harms of pornography, Bundy states, I lived in prison for a long time now, and I've met a lot of men who were motivated to commit violence just like me, and without exception, every one of them was deeply involved with pornography. Without question, without exception, deeply influenced and consumed by addiction to pornography. It may not be a hard scientific evidence, but it is definitely an eye-opening statement coming from one of the most notorious serial killers of all times. In the recent movie about Ted Bundy, Zac Efron was cast as Ted Bundy, and the reason they cast a the wholesome-looking all-American guy like Efron instead of someone who is more typically viewed as creepy, such as Steve Buscemi or Gary Busey or William Defoe. Is because that's the way everyone viewed Ted Bundy in real life up to the point where he was caught. Wholesome, all-American guy with a trustworthy face and demeanor. A lot of people falsely think that you can see sin in people's faces, but some people hide it well. A lot of people falsely think that Judas Iscariot just exuded evil and that everyone who saw him knew to stay clear and not trust him. But that's not the case, not even close. The apostles unanimously voted Judas to be in charge of the money bags precisely because they viewed him as the most trustworthy and honest among them. If any of the apostles would have been suspected of not being faithful, it would have been Peter, but no one suspected Judas. I want to make this clear that no one other than, other than Jesus saw the betrayal by Judas coming. Not even Judas. And that is why, when Jesus said at the Last Supper that one of them would betray him, they each in turn said, Lord, is it I? Instead of saying, Lord, we all know it's Judas. Judas started out as the most trustworthy among them, and because of small concessions that led to bigger sins, he got to the point where he committed the worst sin anyone has ever committed which was betraying the Lord Jesus. When the turning point really came for Judas was during a dinner visit at the house of Simon the leper, when a woman poured the expensive perfume on the head of Jesus, and Judas, who had control of the money bags, wanted to sell it so he could take some of the money. But, of course, he argued that it was to help the poor, which a lot of people would think was a solid argument, but not Jesus. And the Bible says, While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, made out of pure nard, she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, Why is this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money given to the poor, and they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus, why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, the poor you will always have with you, and you can help them at any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could, she poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over." Mark 14, 3-16 So Jesus basically told Judas that if he wanted to help the poor, he could do so at any time he wanted with his own money, and that the woman would always be remembered for what she did. Which is true, because we are just reading about her today. As as far as the poor always being with us, that is also true. And have you ever noticed that in church, whenever anyone suggests making an improvement on the building or anything else that costs money, someone will always throw in the bed about helping the poor? But of course, they never think about helping the poor at any other time, much less do anything about it there will always be poor, but sometimes you have to make repairs and you have to keep the lights on. I'm not saying that we shouldn't help the poor, but what I am saying is that more often than not those who say we should help the poor instead of whatever was suggested are doing the least for the poor and actually care the least about them. When it says some who were present were indignant, it was mostly referring to Judas who didn't care about the poor at all, and only thought to help himself to the money bag. Some theologians think that the portion he thought he could have gotten away with from the amount the perfume would have been sold for was thirty pieces of silver, and that is why he asked for that sum when he betrayed Jesus. Judas was not only indignant because he did not get the money, but also because Jesus corrected him and made him look like the fool he was in front of people. And it was at that moment he decided to betray Jesus, the God of the universe and the Savior of mankind. Some of you may be saying, Hold on a minute, Gene. That passage doesn't say that Judas wanted to steal from the bag or that it was even that event that caused him to betray the Lord. And in fact, it doesn't. But the beauty of having four Gospels written by different men is that some recorded small details that the others didn't and one such detail is in Luke 22.3 where it says that Satan entered Judas. Another example is in Matthew where the passage immediately following Jesus scolding Judas Matthew 26.14 says, Then Judas went to betray Jesus, signifying that it was immediately after. In his account of the experience, John sheds a little more light on the situation with the perfume and tells us explicitly that Jesus, that Judas wanted the money for himself and that he didn't care about the poor. And it says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. John 12, 4-8 it wasn't a surprise to Jesus that he was betrayed by Judas, and he gave him every chance in the world to repent. But Judas never took the out that Jesus was offering. Just a few days after the incident with her perfume, Jesus washed all of the apostles' feet, which was something that a master would never do for a follower, but rather something a slave would do for those over them. But Jesus humbled himself to serve those beneath him. I have to wonder how Judas felt to have Jesus washing his feet after he had agreed to betray him. I may be out in left field on this one, but I don't believe Judas thought Jesus would actually be killed because he got himself out of some pretty tight places time and time again. And Judas probably thought that he would teach Jesus a lesson and have him come around to his way of thinking. Not just because of the betrayal, but also because of the way he addressed Jesus in the garden. We know that Judas was disillusioned and standoffish toward Jesus, because where the apostles had always addressed Jesus as Lord, in the garden, Judas addressed Jesus as Rabbi, which was a lot less personal and no longer recognized for Jesus for who he truly was. And it says in Matthew 26:47 through 50 While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him, was with a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with him. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Even at the very end, Jesus gave Judas a chance to confess and be forgiven, but he never took the mercy and grace that Jesus was offering. When Judas gave the betraying kiss, Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Luke 22, 22:48. In the end, Judas felt such intense guilt and shame for what he had done that he tried to return the money uh, that he was paid for the betrayal, but it was refused, so he threw it down on the floor, and he went out and hanged himself. And as it tells us in Acts 1.18, that the rope broke, and Judas fell down the cliff, and the rocks cut him open, and his guts spilled out. What a horrible and gruesome death for a man who had once showed so much promise, and was giving every opportunity to be saved from himself and from the devil. Even if you think you've gone too far to be forgiven, you have not so long as you are still alive. Jesus has given you the chance to turn from your sins and to follow him. Don't be like Judas and refuse the grace that Jesus is offering. As with Judas and as with Samson, sin starts like a seed that can grow massive if it's allowed to remain. It may not be easy to squash a baby monster but it's a lot easier to kill a small monster than a full-grown one, and it's even easier to prevent the monster in the first place by following quarantine protocols. A small tree may take a little effort to remove, but if it is allowed to grow to adulthood, it can be nearly impossible to remove. The seeds of a giant redwood tree are only an eighth of an inch in diameter, but they can grow to be almost 400 feet tall and once they are established, they are difficult to remove. Redwood trees doesn't have pitch like most coniferous trees, so it's almost impervious to fire. And they're resistant to insects, and the roots grow to intertwine with other trees, which almost makes it impossible to remove one tree without taking out the entire grove. This lesson isn't on home groups, but if you aren't in a home group, you should be, because they work a lot like the community of redwoods. Whatever sin seeds, or even growing sin, you have in your life, you need to get rid of them at all costs, before it destroys you. A lot of people falsely believe that because they created the sin, they can control it. But as Frankenstein learned, just because you created something doesn't mean you can control it. And sometimes, your creation becomes so powerful that it controls you. In the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, Frankenstein creates a monster. And then, instead of dealing with the problems he created, he ignores it and hopes it goes away. But the monster did not forget. No. The monster learned two different languages, and became cunning and calculating, and set out to destroy his maker. And in the end, he succeeded in doing so. The creature killed Frankenstein's nephew, and framed the nanny for it who was hanged. He killed Frankenstein's best friend, and nearly framed him for it. And in the end, he even killed Frankenstein's wife and led him to his ultimate death in a frozen wasteland. My favorite scene in the book is where the creature approaches Frankenstein and demands that he make him a companion. And when he is refused, he says, you are my maker, but I am your master, obey. We often, if not always, make our own monsters and think that because we created them, we can control them. But they will wind up controlling us if we don't get rid of them, though a better solution would be to not create them in the first place. It doesn't matter what it is. We should not allow any compromises to our standards or to the commitments we have made to God and to our obligations because sin will not remain small and it demands to grow and it wants to be hidden so it can do so. Get rid of the sin seeds in your life, and don't plant new ones. God will help you to rid your life of the seeds of sin. But remember, God mostly answers our prayers in the form of another person, and it is often helpful to have a brother or sister in Christ to help us through our struggles. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Faith Podcast. Please rate and review this show and share it with your friends and family. You are loved.